From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. The lie that most people have been taught is that doing this kind of work will be divisive in your church, right? You can't be political. The church isn't supposed to be political. I would say that's bad theology, but it's also just not true. When the church does this work by beginning through listening and relationship building, we strengthen our congregations. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Today, we're speaking with Alex Tyndall Wiesendanger. He's worked with the Jesuit Volunteer Corps and has worked with the Catholic Worker Community. He served as Director of Organizing for the Community Renewal Society in Chicago and as an Associate Director of the Tennessee Coalition to Abolish State Killing. He currently lives with his family in New York City. We're talking about his recent book, Seeds of Justice, Organizing Your Church to Transform the World. Alex Tyndall Wiesendanger, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm going to say this just at the top. In my time as a as an educator, I have occasionally been asked to teach a course called Leadership in Social Justice Organizations. I'm not sure that I'm ever going to teach that class again, unfortunately, but I will just say right now, I wish, I wish I had had this book, Seeds of Justice, in my hands when I was planning and teaching that course. It is rare that I find a book that is this concise, that packs the kind of wallop that yours does. It's clear to me that your book, first of all, comes out of a lot of really on-the-ground experience, but there's also a wisdom that rings through the book and a clarity that rings through the book that I find really refreshing. So first of all, I just want to say to my listeners, but also to you, Whatever you did to write this book, you nailed it, and congratulations because it's fantastic. And I, I'm really looking forward to digging into this in the conversation. Well, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate that. Well, so your book, the subtitle of it is Organizing Your Church to Transform the World. So let's talk a little bit in this first part of the conversation about you and your background. When we say to listeners that you are an organizer, give me three or four sentences about what you understand that role to mean. Sure. That's a great question and a great way to start. Thank you. So an organizer brings people together and helps to train those folks to build the structures and the power that they need to create the change that they find most vital in their lives, in their churches, in their communities, in their workplaces, and in the world. Um, Often when people ask me for an analogy, I'll use the analogy of a coach. If you want to become a good tennis player, you hire a tennis coach, right? The tennis coach doesn't play the game for you, but the tennis coach shows you the skills and the tools you need to play and win the game for yourself. 
I love that because it has that second piece on it. Because when we say that your job is to bring people together, I think that there are people in churches across my realm of listeners, that there are people in churches across the city and across the nation who will say, well, we come together every week. But it's that second part that you're talking about, coming together not just to gather, but to to do something together to create change. All right. And so let's kind of begin to unpack that. So when we talk about creating change, are we talking about kind of drawing up a set of blueprints in the abstract and saying, aha, here are the principles that we believe are what make for a good society. And we're going to put that like a cookie cutter on each of these communities. Is that what an organizer does? Or is the organizer's job somewhat more subtle and different from that? I think it's more subtle. And I think that's a, that's a great question. Again, um, we pretty regularly say that the people closest to the problem are closest to the solution. And uh, both in the book and, and now I want to shout out a fantastic organization founded in Chicago, um, the BYP 100, the Black Youth Project 100, that has a saying and a credo, really, that we are the experts on our own experience, which means that the folks who are experiencing the problems know what needs to happen. And what we need to do is work with those folks to say, okay, how do we take what you're feeling, what you're experiencing? How do you come together and transform the situation you're facing? One of my earliest examples, and I think then I relived this in Chicago, was living in New York City. And and now we've seen something similar in Chicago. You know, the issue of schools is always a big one. And there's a cookie cutter approach that says, well, a school, you know, down the road is a quote unquote better school. Let's close down school A and send all the kids to school B. But that hasn't talked to people in the neighborhood who might tell you, actually, that's sending our kids across a gang line. We won't do that. That's unsafe. Or actually, the school not only teaches classes, but serves a vital community function. We need our school because it's also where people come in the evening. It's also where this important community building happens. So people who are experiencing the issues need to name the solutions for themselves. And a, a good organizer listens to that process. I'd say a good anyone, a good politician, a good faith leader, but particularly in our role as organizers, that's what we have to do. And so when we're talking about people closest to the problem, having the best solutions to the problem, unfortunately, when I look around at our country, that's often not the way that we allow problems to be addressed. And you notice I said addressed rather than solved. And mm-hmm. so uh, so what we're talking about is not just a change in the approach of an individual person who might be an organizer, but the organizer, I think, if I'm hearing you correctly, also has to be involved in what we might call a culture shift in our nation. Now, do I have that dynamic correct as well? Yeah, I think that's that's accurate. Most of the decision making we see happen in our city, our country, our world is top down, right? It's made by people with a lot of money, a lot of political power, and they say this is what's right for you. And most of us are acted upon. And what we need to do is to flip that dynamic to to become the actors in our own communities, our own narratives, really to take back that power. I think the one thing that that is a little different is that we're unlikely to see people just change, especially those in power, because it's the right thing to do. Folks very rarely do that, whether it's a president or a, a mayor or a state legislature. Those of us who are being acted upon need to come together and be enough of a force to change that 
those policies, those practices ourselves. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and if you're just joining us, our guest today is Alex Tyndall Wiesendanger, and we're talking about his recent book, Seeds of Justice, Organizing Your Church to Transform the World. Well, how did you come to get involved in this kind of work? Like, did you did you go to college saying, I want to be an organizer, let me major in organizing, or did this come about in some other way? Yeah, absolutely not. There's a, I don't think there's any undergraduate major in community organizing. There are a very few kind of master programs that are developing now. I sort of like to say that I was, I was tricked by God into, into organizing. And I think I came to this work the way most people do. Um, when I was young, you just start noticing that something's wrong here. And for me, the moment, and I talk about this in the book as well, was when I started going to school. Um, I grew up uh, on the border of Spanish Harlem and Harlem in New York City at that time, low-income communities of color. But because I had educated white parents, I was able to test into gifted education. And that was downtown. And when I went into that school, I noticed very quickly how different the school looked from the schools in my neighborhood and how different the kids looked than my my friends back in my neighborhood. And at, at age six, right, you don't have language like structural racism or systemic injustice, but you can figure out that something's not right and not fair here. And so it gets you started to ask these questions. Why are, do some have so much and some have so little? I could tell that the children I went to school with weren't actually smarter than my friends in the neighborhood, but we were being set up on these two totally different tracks. I think the other kind of two pieces for me were, one, uh, my father is a mailman, and his union was a really important part of our experience growing up. So having that foundation of people coming together, and when their boss did something they didn't like, or that wasn't safe, or that wasn't fair, they could act together to change it. And then lastly, most of the people that I learned the most from growing up weren't, you know, people with advanced degrees. They were church grandmothers and, you know, and guys on the block. And that taught me that the folks who maybe have the fancy titles don't always have the solutions and that we should listen uh, and really listen to the people in our neighborhoods. There's something that you said in your answer that I want to dig down into a little bit more deeply. You use the phrase that uh, even at six or seven years old, you began to notice as you entered school that the kids that were your friends at the border of Harlem and Spanish Harlem versus the kids that were in the gifted program with you, they were set up on two totally different tracks. So I'm going to test something here with you and let me know if I've got it right or if I need to change it in some way. Sure. Could we say that in both cases, the gifted program and the kids on the border of Harlem and Spanish Harlem, they were both being organized by our culture, but they were being organized in two totally different ways towards two totally different outcomes, and that there are, that there are pressures and systems which organize people regardless of where they are, and part of your job as an organizer is to help to organize them differently. Now, first of all, my premise that everybody's organized Am I on base there, or would you say it in a different way? Yeah, I think you're exactly on point. I would say that our system has organized things to go in a certain way. Um, you know, Howard Zinn said there's no being standing still on a moving train, right? Things are moving 
the way things are isn't the way they have to be. They've been organized by powers and principalities, if you were. And so our job is when we see that those systems are unfair or unjust is to change them, to organize people together, to transform those systems. Okay. And so your job as an organizer is to help people not only become organized differently, but is it fair to say that your job is also to maybe awaken them or alert them to the fact that they've been organized in the first place? Is that part of the work that you do? Absolutely. Most people know that something's wrong, but we have been taught that the way things are, are the way things have to be. And starting to break that down and kind of do the political education of, well, why does it have to be that way? Is there any reason that this school gets to have 18 kids in science classrooms and this kid, this school has 32 kids and no textbooks? right? Does it have to be that way? Why do we think that? Who told you that? And then what if we did it differently? How would you do it? Most folks, and this, you know, this is true for all of us. And I think the sort of lower down you've been pushed on the socioeconomic ladder, the less likely it is that you've ever been told that your opinion actually could matter or that you have power. And so it takes some time for people to say, oh, I could change this. I can change this. And that's where the work of, of a good organizer comes in, right? Helping people expand their imaginations. You mentioned in your book that where you grew up, the neighborhood where you grew up is just down the hill from Columbia University. And so I imagine, as you say in the book, a lot of experts from Columbia University have looked at your neighborhood. But the key piece that you just said that you you note that the Columbia experts often did not do was to listen to the people that were actually there. They would come in with a set of solutions, but they wouldn't necessarily be solutions to the problems that the people were feeling or that they had. Why is it so prevalent that experts, and I'm scare quoting that, will come in and bring that kind of cookie cutter solution and not do the listening that you're talking about? Well, I think it's because we've been told that low-income people, people of color, couldn't have solutions, right? When you go to a master's of public policy program, whether it's at Columbia or the University of Chicago or Harvard, you're told you're the gifted one. Here's how you crunch the numbers. Here's the special text you have to have read. And if you don't have this language, you couldn't possibly know anything. This is part of that organization that that you pointed out. This is the way we have organized our society to say only a few people are smart, only a few people have solutions. And it also tends to very much narrow the spectrum of things we could look at, right? Like what's the point of spending $100,000 on a master of public policy if you have to go and listen to people who never graduated from high school? Um, So, you know, we have to really untrain our professionals to do that. And we need to change the way we make decisions that privileges those type of voices over the people who've really hurt and felt the, the situation. That phrase, untrain our professionals, I want to come back to that later in the conversation. But as we're heading to break, if you could name probably the one major obstacle to an expert understanding their need to listen, what would you say it was? Wow. That's a really, that's a good and tough question. But I think the number one obstacle is understanding how little you know understanding that no amount of education can take the place of lived experience. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Alex Tyndall Wiesendanger. And he is an organizer and has worked both in Chicago and New York and is now working nationally on various organization movements. We're talking about his recent book from Orbis Press, Seeds of Justice, Organizing Your Church to Transform the World. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Alex Tyndall Wiesendanger. We're talking about his recent book, Seeds of Justice, Organizing Your Church to Transform the World. He has worked across the nation, mostly in New York and Chicago, but now more nationally, in terms of organizing various coalitions for the work of justice and the work of social change. Something that's right there in the subtitle of your book is Organizing the Church or organizing your church to transform the world. And so I'd like to take a few moments and ask, why the church? What is it about a church community that offers opportunities for organization for social change? It's a great question. I think there's a couple key points. The first is that when we come together as church, we're on a mission, whether we've recognized it or not. Right. And the teachings of, of Jesus, for those of us from the Christian tradition, but I don't think these are in any way unique to Christians, right, is one of a total revolution to turn around of the way we organize our society and power and relationships. And so our language is already there. The second is that most organizations that you see doing the work of justice are only doing, you know, sort of organizing the people who already agree with them, right? If you go to an environmental organization, everyone already agrees climate change is a problem, right? But when you go to a church, we all have this language that we've been speaking, but 90% of your church wouldn't think of themselves as social justice advocates. And so transforming that consciousness is what we're, when we're really changing people's minds. And rather than just taking the activists from organization A to organization B, we're turning people who've never been actors for justice in there. And the third is I think every social movement that's really moved anything has had a really powerful faith component, whether that's the movement for civil rights or the abolition of slavery or nuclear disarmament. And for me as a person of faith, that is a vital piece. We also need to do this for the church. The church cannot be the church unless it's actually living out that, that prophetic call, that, uh, that the prophets that Jesus have called for. And so I think also as we talk about how do we revitalize the church, this is, this is what's needed. We need to deeply come together in deep, meaningful relationship to change the world around us. That word relationship is, I think, central to your book, Seeds of Justice. And it 
comes up again and again in each chapter, your commitment to listening, but also I'm hearing very clearly, and I'm going to use a Jesuit term here, discerning, because it's not simply a matter of coming together and sitting in the same space. And it's not simply a matter of kind of putting out a net and saying, who wants to work on justice issues? Because as you say, I think very wisely in the book, there are some people who will show up and want to be leaders who have an ax to grind, and some people who show up and want to be leaders because they just don't have enough to do. And so (laughs) first of all, as a person who is trying to organize and who needs basically people to get involved, how do you find a way to include those kind of people who want to be leaders but are not qualified yet to be leaders? How do you help them to become involved without becoming distracted or becoming distracting? And how do you sort of separate the wheat from the chaff and actually figure out who the real leaders in the community are? It's a fantastic question. And ironically, it's a question no one asks. And that's why we end up with, you know, sort of angry people sitting in a circle complaining you know that like a social justice committee at free church is like seven upset people who like just sit and complain about how no one else gets it and then put you know an announcement in the bulletin every month so when we define leader there should be a very clear and simple definition and and here's mine and this isn't something i came up with this is the long time definition right a leader has followers otherwise you're just a person shouting so the way you discover leaders is you talk to people who do you really listen to? Who do you follow? Who who in your church do people really respect? You know, who do you come to when you're trying to figure something out? If someone, who, if they asked you to show up, would you show up for? And when you do that, you start identifying the people who are clearly leaders. The second piece of this is you have a, uh, a clear, transparent understanding that everyone knows. Being on our committee means that you do X, Y, Z. Right. So if you want to be a leader, you have to either have followers that you're engaging or be willing to be trained in how to do deep organizing one on one conversations and go out and do that so you can build followers and engage people. And that way you don't get into clicks. You don't get into, well, so and so liked him or this is the pastor's friend or it's these are the things we all agree to. And this is how you become a leader. And I think that, that when you use that kind of model, which unfortunately very few churches or organizations of any kind do, you build a really powerful church and everyone understands kind of how you become a member of a committee or a leader of a committee because it's not random and it's accessible to everyone. The last thing I'll add on this, and I apologize for the long answer, is that when we understand leaders as people with followers – we remove a lot of the racist, classist, elitist definitions of a leader has to be the person who's most well-spoken. A leader has to be the person who writes the best. What we really learn is that leaders are everywhere and your church is full of leaders. Um, And I write about my home church in Chicago in the book that the leaders of that, you know, were two church grandmothers and that they were the people that if you wanted to move the church, you moved Mama Versi and Miss Gloria Seabrook. And once they said, this is what we want, they'd been in that church and respected and caring and loving on, on everyone in that community for so long that once you said, Mama Versi's on the social justice committee, everyone knew the social justice committee was legit. When Miss Gloria got up and did the announcement about an action, everyone said, all right, we're getting on the bus. 
I, I, I'm thinking now of an ex- another example you give in your book, Seeds of Justice, where you talk about one of the founders of force fighting to overcome records and create equality, which is working with ex-offenders who are uh, coming back into society. And what you observed about him was that he was very reluctant because of his background to step into a leadership role. And you actually challenged him at one point, if I'm remembering correctly, because you said, yeah. you know, you, you started this organization force in order that your voice would be heard and people with your experience would be heard, but you keep stepping back. So what is the role of kind of encouraging or to use your word in the book, agitating people to become leaders in those moments? How do you help people to overcome their own resistances to being leaders? Yeah, that's a great question. It's something a good organizer and any good leader should be doing all the time. We see the leadership someone has, right? We can see that person. And we've had enough of a relationship where we've talked. I know what this person cares about and values. And then when they're stepping back, when they're not acting, when they're you know, dodging or ducking or saying, couldn't someone else do it? Then it's our job to, as you said, the word is agitate, to shake the dust off that person's values and ask them those hard questions, right? Like in in the book, if you want people like you, people with records to be at the table when we're making decisions, can that happen if you let someone else be in charge of the meeting about legislation that affects you? And you let them sit with that discomfort and say, okay, no, I need to do this. And, you know, that's a scary thing. It's a scary thing for both people. But if we really love people, if we really care about them, we have to care about them enough to challenge them to be the person they are called to be. You know, in that story, and and there's been a lot, any organizer has a lot of stories like that, a lot of those conversations I think about how easy it would have been for me to say, oh, yeah, you know, if you didn't even graduate high school, you've been locked up, you don't know a lot of $5 words, let's let, you know, some educated person share the meeting with the the state representative. But that would have been a real betrayal of the relationship I built uh, with that person because we were both organizing ourselves around this idea that people with records should set their own destinies. So you have to do it and I can't do it, right? All I can do is I'll prep with you for hours to make sure you're comfortable, but you're going to lead that meeting because it's about you, your life, your community, your family. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Alex Tyndall Wiesendanger. We're talking about his recent book, Seeds of Justice, Organizing Your Church to Transform the World. Well, in your book, Seeds of Justice, you make a point that really hit me hard. You quote the 20th century theologian Reinhold Niebuhr, and you talk about the relationship of love and power. And I Mm -hmm. think that, that this is a good point now to begin to introduce that into the conversation, because I think a lot of people imagine that as Christians, we're supposed to lead with love and we're supposed to withdraw from trying to ally ourselves with earthly power. You go in a different direction. So first of all, what did Niebuhr say about the relationship with love and power? And then we'll start to dig in. Yeah. So Niebuhr said, power without love is tyranny, but love without power is anemic sentimentality. And I think that that really needs to speak true to us, that to say we love people, but we will not build power and use that for the issues that matter to people, takes our love from the most powerful emotion in the world to a Hallmark card. And I've had enough Hallmark cards. 
people who are suffering don't need Hallmark cards, right? They need the ability to change what's happening. And that is, is about power. So what does love with power, what does powerful love look like in action? And I realize that's a very general question. So if you want to give some specific examples from your experience, that's fine. But if you also want to start out with kind of a general case, if that's possible, that would also be fine. Sure. So actually, since we're speaking, you know, nine days after Easter, the best example of love without power is Jesus's anti-imperial march into the temple and occupying the temple. We never think of that as an action of power. But in fact, that's what we celebrate on Palm Sunday and the day after and, and the whole week of Easter. Right. So power you know, executing love in public is the way we we think about this, is when instead of having folks at the top decide what happens to all of us, people come together and move the systems and structures to change, to do the right thing. You know, and for me, the most clear way that this happens is in what we call an accountability session or a public meeting. This is where instead of fancy, you know, lawmakers, CEOs telling us what's going to happen, hundreds and thousands of people come together and bring a decision maker before them to respond to their demands. And it's not give us a speech about what you what you'll do for us. It's these are what we expect. Are you going to do it? And it's a fundamental transformation in the way we understand our power relationships. What's so great about that in your book, Seeds of Justice, is you give a concrete example of a judge on the west side of Chicago, and you bring you you helped to bring that judge in, but when the judge came in, the judge came into a packed church with 500 people, standing room only, and then the people with one voice kind of uh, stated their demands, but then, and this is where I think it really gets down to brass tacks, they then asked the judge three yes or no questions. Will you do this? Yes or no. Will you do this? Yes or no. So everyone walked away from that meeting with a very clear agenda. And then if the judge failed to follow those commitments, they had accountability. Now, first of all, I read that a couple of days ago. So do I have the story correct? Is there anything that you would change about the way that I told it? And what can we learn from that kind of situation if I do have it correct? You've got it absolutely correct. What I would add is how we got there, which is the same process as we talked about. All of those three questions were developed by community members, by local pastors who were burying too many kids, by young men and women who been incarcerated and been a part of the criminal justice system, figuring out what they need together, and then coming to the the power structures and saying, this is what will change our community. This is what we expect. Will you do it? Yes or no. So that's, that's exactly what we want to be doing. And what's so beautiful about it is we never are offered those opportunities, right? Normally, you know, the judge, the mayor, the president, tells us they're on script, right? We have to vote yes or no when it's time to elect someone, but we're never told that we have the ability to hold them accountable. And so the public meeting, the accountability session with that, you know, kind of harsh, maybe yes or no question is one of the most powerful ways that people can come together. And, and we've done this all across Chicago and, and other places. And, uh, and I will say one thing I never did before I listened 
to a local pastor on the West side, uh, pastor side field, who I'll shout out was he came up with, you know, he was going to be the person who asked, uh, I think it was the cook County president this question. And he said, no, cause we're all doing this. Like the day of there's a thousand people. And he's like, everyone stand up. And the whole church is going to ask you this question together. So there's no playing and the power for people to feel that if I can demand that this person who I've only seen on TV responds clearly, will you do the thing that I need? Yes or no. It's, it's a transformative experience. And for my listeners, there were some concrete outcomes that came from that public commitment. And in particular, there was the establishment on the west side of Chicago, the first restorative justice court. And just so that my listeners understand what kind of difference that made on the west side of Chicago, what is a restorative justice court and what is the impact that it has been having on the west side? Sure. So restorative justice transforms the way we do justice right now. I'll see if, how quickly I can do this right right now. Our punitive system says what, what rule was broken, who broke it and how do we punish people for that? And folks are on both sides are left hurt, more damaged and unhealed. Restorative justice asks what harm was done who was harmed, and how do we restore everyone to community? So rather than dragging a young person from the West Side down to Cook County Jail and then locking them up, which does nothing, when there's been a low-level offense, they're brought into a community setting, a church basement, right, with community members, the person who's been harmed, the person who did harm, and they work out, come back into right relationship and work out agreements of how do we fix this. The other thing that this does that's very important is you know, at this time right now, we have more people in behind bars in America than we've ever had. And that's deadly for communities. It's literally deadly now in the time of the coronavirus. And it's incredibly expensive, right? Every dollar we spend on locking someone up or every dollar we spend on another military bomber is a dollar we don't put into educating our children or healing someone who's sick or a violence prevention community that works or a sports program for youth. And so this campaign was about changing those priorities and investing in the things that our communities say they need. I think that's another reason why the churches are such an important part of the model that you're giving us, because if the churches actually read the book, and if they're actually listening to the sermons, they are preaching this already to themselves, that we believe in the possibility of repentance and making amends. And so how do you help in those situations to kind of leverage the story that the church is already telling into action? What is that mechanism like? So I think that the process is talking to enough people to identify the key issues that are happening. And then we sort of do our political and social and faith-based analysis, right? So what does this mean? What are the values at stake here? The good news is we've got stories in our sacred texts for everything, right? We've got so many teachings about economic justice, about racial justice, about criminal justice. So it's very easy to then talk about, well, look, this is what Jesus truly said about this, or here's the, the teaching from the prophets. And I think that having that language is vital, but even more vital is the relationship, that there have been so many books so many books on any issue you want and what Jesus said and what the faith-based perspective of it is. And most of us read those books and come away informed while the system goes on. But if we've organized ourselves, what's most important is that someone we're in relationship with is coming back to us and saying, you remember how we talked about 
this issue that you saw in your community or that people in our church are experiencing. Now it's time to get on the bus and go to Springfield. Now it's time to march to City Hall. Now it's time to come to the accountability session. Now it's time to make this phone call. Now it's time. And when it's someone you know who's actually talked to you, we actually take that action. And that's where we can transform. I remember once very early in in my time organizing in Chicago, we were trying to move the then governor, two governors ago now, right, Governor Quinn. And we were able to have every church picked an hour over the course of a week when their members would call. And we occupied a whole week, 40 hours, right, of our church is going to make phone calls this hour. By the end of Monday, the governor's office was furious. Why are people calling? And it was just like, well, you haven't done what they need yet. And a different church could do that because someone else from your church was coming and saying, now it's our turn to call guys. Ready? 1030, get on the phone. And, And that's really powerful. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Alex Tyndall Wiesendanger. We're talking about his recent book, Seeds of Justice, Organizing Your Church to Transform the World. We'll be back in a moment. Hey folks, this is David. Thank you for listening and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you're probably aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of them is the Commonweal podcast, produced by my friends over at Commonweal magazine. For almost a century now, Commonweal has staked a claim for Catholic principles and perspectives in American life and for lay people's voices within the church. Their podcast features a wide spectrum of voices discussing art, politics, religion, and civil society. Each episode offers three or four segments that amplify the pages of the print magazine and move into new frontiers. I've been a reader of Commonweal for a long time, and I'm thrilled to share this new podcast with you, whether you're a longtime reader yourself or just discovering it for the first time. You can find the Commonweal podcast on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts, as well as on their website, commonwealmagazine.org podcast. That's commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. Today, we're talking with Alex Tyndall Wiesendanger. He is an organizer who's worked in the Chicago and New York City areas. He now works nationally with various organizations. But we're discussing a recent book of his called Seeds of Justice, Organizing Your Church to Transform the World. Well, as you mentioned earlier in the conversation, we're having our discussion a couple of days after Easter. And throughout reading your book, I was mindful of a movie that I watched a number of years ago, directed by Martin Scorsese, called The Last Temptation of Christ. And there's a scene in that film where Christ, played by Willem Dafoe, goes in front of Pontius Pilate, who's played by David Bowie. And there's an exchange between them. It's brief. But during that exchange, Pontius Pilate says to Christ, It doesn't matter how many of you want things to change. We simply don't want them changed. And so anytime that we're talking about organizing, we're talking about going up against institutional power. And institutional power not only has the kind of ideological sense of this is natural, this is the way things are supposed to be, this is God-ordained, they also have police power and force to bring. So how do you, as an organizer, help to encounter and to counter the actual physical resistance that you get from the institutions that you're trying to change? Yeah. 
I think that's that's exactly the question. The the good news again for us is that we have the language and the tools of faith from the prophets and Jesus and and the nonviolent demonstrations that Pilate's reacting to, right? In in that scene and in, in the in the Bible, taking us through Gandhi and King. You know, those of us in America are very blessed to live in a democratic society where we have vastly more ability to influence the powerful than folks in Jesus's time did. And yet we still see these kind of movements. You know, I think that it's so interesting, right? Pilate saying, we don't want things to change, so they won't. If they weren't worried about things changing, they wouldn't have had to execute Jesus. They were terrified of the power that Jesus was building. And so when we think about how we move, this is another thing that's so vital and important for our faith traditions, right? We have that language of prayer and lament. I remember an action we did on the fifth floor of City Hall in Chicago, where because it was Ash Wednesday, we placed ashes everywhere, right? We have these these forms that show us, that call us to conscience. And the power of people coming together and doing that in large numbers. You know, since we're talking about Easter, a point that I always like to make is we have to remember that it was not just Jesus's message, but the fact that Jesus was building so much power that was so terrifying, right? The only reason you need Judas is because you can't come after Jesus in public. There are too many people, the whole crowd, it says in the Bible, they wanted to arrest him, but could not for fear of the crowd. They need to go get him when he's off alone and that's why they do it during a, a major holiday. They got to get rid of this guy before people find out because everyone is following this nonviolent movement of justice. There's something that you say in your answer just now that came up a couple of times that I really want to linger on. You use the word terrified, that those in power were terrified of the movement that Jesus was building. So when we're talking about that, we're talking about fear. And an organizer has to confront fear on a number of levels. An organizer has to confront their own fear. They have to confront mm-hmm. the fear of, hey, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be the one doing this, of the people that they're trying to develop into leaders. They also have to encounter the fear and counter the fear of the institutions that they're trying to change. Each one of those fears has a different result. In the first two instances, my fear as an organizer, the fear of someone I'm trying to develop into a leader, it might just be in action. The fear of an institution might lead to actual outbreaks of violence. What can an organizer do to honestly confront their own fears? And then what can they do to honestly protect against the outlandish lashing out of fear on the part of an institution that might lead to injury or death? Yeah, those are both vital questions. So to confront our own fear, I think there's there's two pieces of it. First, there's the personal. There's the spending time in prayer, right? One of the first things I ask myself, I ask uh, organizers who work for me, where is your prayer life, right? What are you doing? How are you becoming ready? That's really vital. But the second part of that is none of us do this alone, right? If you take nothing else away from my book, it's you can't do things alone. Do it together. So even your team that you're working with is about holding, mutually holding each other accountable and being willing to push ourselves to say, we're not going to be afraid. The words most often spoken by the risen Christ are be not afraid. And then to confront the reactions of the systems, the powers, the principalities, I think there's a couple pieces. The first is you prepare yourselves, right? 
But when you're talking to people, once we're ready to act, we have to ask that question, what we call inoculate ourselves to the backlash that'll come. Now, first off, most of us don't confront violence at the front end, unless we're talking about economic violence. We confront They'll attack you. They'll try to bring you down. They'll, in, in the context of labor, they'll fire you. They'll try to intimidate you. These are the things we expect. And so we get ourselves ready, right? So we know that's coming. What you saw in the civil rights movement was the amount of training people did before a nonviolent action, being prepared. And then the way we move is to be in large groups, be in very public spaces, and to do so nonviolently using that language of, of faith and of nonviolence. So I'm, I'm hearing a lot there in that answer, but the thing that I want to now ask a follow-on is training. So training sounds like a top-down activity, but you've said again and again that we need to be listening from the bottom up. So how do you balance the kind of top-down, here's how you do it, versus the here's what we need to have done? How does an organizer sort of get those two things in proper balance? It's a fantastic question. For me, the difference is between skills and making decisions about what's important. Again, if you want to learn how to play a musical instrument, you go to a teacher and you don't argue, I want to hold the violin in my teeth. Right? I mean, you could do that, but it would be a stupid use of your time and the teachers. So what an organizer can and should do, what I do as a trainer is provide skills, right? How do you take the anger you have and what are the skills you need to go from the anger with injustice to winning something that matters to your community, to your life, to your family? What an organizer should never do is tell people what they should care about or pick the the tactic that people are going to do, right? An organizer should offer experience, should offer guidance and give people everything we know so that they can make the best decisions for themselves and have the best chance of winning. Hey, you had an idea. You want to march. Okay, that's a great idea. Let me tell you some experiences I've had of when marches are successful and when marches fail and let you make a decision for yourself. But the decision points always have to be with the people who are living and doing the work, your community leaders. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Alex Tyndall Wiesendanger about his recent book, Seeds of Justice, Organizing Your Church to Transform the World. Well, you used a phrase a moment ago, and now I'm going to use that phrase, or I'm, I'm now going to offer that phrase to you. Where is your prayer life right now as a result of doing this work? It's a fantastic question. So my prayer life, and I try to keep it in a couple places, right? So, I mean, I have a very regular practice of prayer every morning, every evening that, that are, you know, really important to keeping me stable. But a couple of the places that I sort of continue to ask God to, to speak to me are, one, to continue to open me up to listening, right? To always avoid that kind of that sin of egotism, of you know the most, right? And especially that becomes more and more of a temptation as you've done this longer, like I have, right? I've now done this 15, 18 years, which means I know a lot about organizing, but can never let me bypass listening to other people first. The second place is to continue to help me feel the passion of Christ for justice, for God's people, right? To really be listening for those moments. And then I think the third is hope. 
especially in times like today, but in any fight for justice, we always see that we're going up against deep entrenched power. And so believing that the victory is the Lord's and has already been claimed is, is a vital place for, for me in my own prayer life. Yeah, and it's clear from your book, and it's clear from your conversation with me, that you are a person of faith. But I'm wondering, were you raised in a faith tradition, or did you come to this somewhere later? And, and so that's where I want to start, and then I want to ask you a couple of follow-on questions after that. Yeah, I was I was raised in the Catholic Church, uh, in sort of the Dorothy Day Jesuit tradition of that church, and I've, I've stayed there most of my life. And so as you have been engaged in this work, has your faith changed over the years? And if you can give some examples of how it's changed, that I think would be helpful to me and my listeners. Yeah, uh, very much so. I mean, I think that, you know, you go from the faith of a child to an adult. And one of the places that came to me very quickly is that faith without works is dead. That was the reading at my wedding, you know, that we we have to have to continue to do that. And then what continues to be really exciting to me in my faith is that you're never done, right? It's not like you're, hey, I am now the perfect Christian. I am now the perfect organizer. I have nothing new to learn. So every time I feel complete, God has a wonderful way of kind of slapping me upside the head and saying, well, you're not really listening here yet, or you really need to stretch yourself in this direction. That's been really wonderful. The other thing that that is great for me is I've always worked in an ecumenical setting. I've never worked in, you know, only Catholic churches. And so learning how rich and diverse our Christian family is and the languages of prayer is something that I continue to love about about this time. And you mentioned ecumenical communities. Have you found that the Catholic Church has been responsive to these kind of messages that you've been bringing to various parishes, or have you found more resonance in Protestant churches? It totally runs the gamut. The Catholic Church, uh, my church, I would say, has you know both the ri- probably the richest and longest historical tradition of social justice teaching, but it's also kept very secret, and it's probably the most top-down church. In, in the Christian uh, tradition as well. So it really, it varies. But what I can say is that there are people in every church, every church I've ever encountered, who wouldn't use the language of social justice or organizing or activist, but who feel God's call to do what's right for God's people. And, you know, St. Paul said, I can be all, all things to all men to bring them to Christ. I don't compare myself to St. Paul, but I think we can find that yearning that's in everyone's hearts and move them into God's path of justice. One of the things that is very helpful in your book, Seeds of Justice, is that you talk about not only how you listen to and engage those that are closest to the problems, the people with the kind of seats in the pews, you also talk a bit about how to engage religious leadership. And so for my listeners, when you are trying to speak not just to a congregant, but to a pastor, or let's even say a bishop, what is the same and what's different about your approach as an organizer? Yeah. So things that are the same, you know, I I believe most of our religious leaders are deeply authentic people of faith. And so they have the same yearnings for themselves and for their, their communities as anyone else does. What I think is different is that, you know, a pastor, a bishop is also the leader of 
a church or a whole set of churches. And so they need to think not just about what's good in terms of the issues, but also how this is helpful for their church. The lie that most people have been taught is that doing this kind of work will be divisive in your church, right? You can't be political. The church isn't supposed to be political. I would say that's bad theology, but it's also just not true that when the church does this work by beginning through listening and relationship building, we strengthen our congregations. Instead of being divisive, we bring people together and give people more meaning in their church. And I think particularly as the Christian church overall is struggling, right? I'm a part of the least churched generation in American history. And I find that that's not because people, you know, my age and and mostly younger, (laughs) uh, my age, there's more and more younger people as I go along and, and say that. It's not because they don't want a relationship with God or even be a part of a church. It's because they don't believe the church, right? When the church says we love everyone, they say, but you're not out here when the police are harassing young people, but you're not out here when we're crippled by student debt, but you're not here. You don't really care. I can't see your love in public. So doing this work together actually brings folks into the church and gives them more meaning for their faith. You just used that word love, and I think that's a good place for us to end. So as an organizer, as a person who has worked on building relationships with people, what is love and how does love impact the world? Mm. You know, I mean, at at the simplest level, love is the best way we can understand God. But love is not just a feeling. Love is action. Love is striving to do what's right in relationship with other people. And it's to risk everything to care for those around us. And as you have been working as an organizer, I know that you've been dealing with frustrations and I know that you've been dealing with opposition. Have you found that your, and I'm thinking about this maybe in terms of like a battery or a bank, and maybe that's the wrong way to think about it. Have you, have you felt that your ability to love has increased or decreased in your process of doing this work? And what is it that you think has contributed either to that increase or decrease? Yeah, I, I, I actually think it's a little more cyclical, right? That there are times that I'm doing better at love and there are times that I'm doing worse. What I find is that I'm doing worse when I'm spending less time talking and listening to people. One of my first things is when I'm feeling just frustrated, you need to go out and schedule some one-on-ones with church folks and community members. I think it does stretch us, right? And the, the work of organizing to be able to authentically listen to everyone stretches our ability to love. But that's a really important stretch that we all need to make. And I know that an author's answer to this question is always everybody. But if you could focus on one particular group of people who most need to read your book and absorb its message, who is your key audience right now for this book, Seeds of Justice? It's a fantastic question, and I actually won't say everybody. Seeds of Justice is for those people who are in your church now wondering why your church isn't doing more. Or in your fate, your organization now wondering why your organization isn't effective. It's it's the members of your social justice committee, or maybe that person who would like there to be a social justice committee, but there isn't one or there isn't an effective one. This is the book to read together, to have the skills and the path to make your church what you want it to be, a truly effective, powerful agent of God's kingdom in the world. 
Well, I have to say, having read the book, that I think that you're exactly on the mark there, because when I read this book, I realized not only how I could apply it in the classroom, but how I could change the way that I'm acting in my parish and begin to become a better listener and to become to help to identify and put forward and support those who are already in leadership in my parish, but I hadn't been thinking about them as leaders. So for me, and I want to say this to my listeners, if you have been frustrated about the way in which the church has been operating and you wish that it could do more for the least of these among us and the most vulnerable, I cannot recommend enough Seeds of Justice, Organizing Your Church to Transform the World by Alex Tyndall Wiesendanger. And I just want to say again, thank you for all of the work that you have done in gaining the experience and the knowledge to be able to write this book. Thank you for writing this book. But also, Alex Tyndall Wiesendanger, thank you for taking the time to talk about this book with me and my listeners today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really a pleasure. We've been speaking today with Alex Tyndall Wiesendanger. He's worked with the Jesuit Volunteer Corps and has lived in a Catholic worker community. He served as Director of Organizing for the Community Renewal Society in Chicago and as an Associate Director of the Tennessee Coalition to Abolish State Killing. He currently lives with his family in New York City, where he works as a labor movement organizer for the Musicians Union. We have been discussing his recent book, Seeds of Justice, Organizing Your Church to Transform the World, published recently by Orbis Press. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.